Hello, and welcome back to Aegis Therapy's PDGM podcast series, a podcast designed to give you ongoing information and strategies for success in the new home health environment. I'm Hal Price, Senior Vice President for Sales and Marketing for Aegis, and today I'm joined by Don Greaves, Aegis Therapy's Vice President for At Home with Aegis, and Mark Betch, Chief Clinical Officer at Aegis Therapies. Don and Mark, thanks very much for joining me today, and I'm going to jump right into this. Today, the topic we want to cover uh, is uh, collaboration and communication. Now, when you hear those two words, the first thing I think is, well, haven't collaboration and communication always been important uh, in any healthcare service environment, and in particular working uh, in the home health environment? What's different today? Why are we focusing on that for this session? It always has been important uh, in home health. And um, with the changes in PDGM, the importance of that communication and collaboration is just emphasized. Um, most agencies today um, are in the habit of communicating or collaborating between nursing and therapy around the functional scores or functional measures. Um, some do a better job at that than others. Um, but the um, COPs allow you to collaborate as you're doing your starter care assessments. And so that's one area where people um, communicate well. In the PDGM world, since the clinical grouping is determined by the primary diagnosis, it's become even more important that communication and collaboration piece because that is the one of the big determinants of reimbursement in the new model. And some of the clinical groupings are um, pay significantly more than other clinical groupings. And so if you don't communicate and collaborate as a team around that primary diagnosis and you miss what would have been the appropriate primary diagnosis, it can definitely impact your, your reimbursement in the new model. The same thing's true about comorbidities in that um, the, the comorbidities today um, aren't that impactful from a reimbursement standpoint, certainly impactful from a clinical standpoint and the patient's needs and, and, and their, uh, how well they may do with rehab. But uh, in the new world, those comorbidities feed into the payment model, and so it's really important um, to get those components correct. Um, rehospitalization risk is another area under PDGM that um, adds to um, that functional score. And so, whereas today the functional score focuses on um, a few items, um, rehospitalization is new into the functional score, as is the um, question on grooming. So, those are a couple of areas where communication and collaboration um, are enhanced. The need for that is enhanced in the new model. Yeah, and um, I, I think Don, you mentioned you mentioned grooming. Certainly, all of the functional areas that that are taken from the Oasis. Um, and, and used for the uh, for the payment model are important, right? And important that, again, emphasizing the value of communication and collaboration, so that agencies should want input, feedback from the therapists on what they see as the as the functional performance level for patients. And then then comes the collaboration, right? So there's that interaction between nursing staff and therapists and other caregivers, perhaps, to come to a consensus score, because that's really what you want uh, to make sure that you're capturing on the OASIS. So communication, uh, certainly important, and then collaboration, and they really are different. Uh, collaboration emphasizing the back and forth, the 
the consensus building, uh, if you will. I, I think that's really important. Yeah, I think that I think that's a great point. And um, one of the things that's changed since we did our last podcast um, is the um, proposed rule for 2020 has come out. And so if you've listened to those podcasts, um, you'll want to be aware that uh, the grouper tool and the case mix weight tool that we've referred you to before, uh, that the all of the points have have shifted, right? And so the total um, that you may have gotten for any one of the 432 groups prior in the prior calculations in the in the final rule for 2019 in the proposed rule for 2020 have shifted a little bit. And so if you went out and pulled the grouper tool and did some calculations, you want to be sure you go and pull the new grouper tool um, so that you're looking at that, that updated and accurate data. Um, and covering the changes in the, in the proposed rule um, really isn't the purpose of today's call, but I think we need to say that PDGM is happening pretty much the way that it was rolled out um, last year, right, that it was proposed last year. So um, not much has changed there, but you want to be aware of the case mix. Um, if you haven't had a chance to read the rule yet, uh, we did do um, a webinar and that's available on our website, um, going through some of the high points. And, and there were things in addition to the uh, PDGM methodology that were covered. So whether you go out and listen to our podcast, or, or I'm sorry, to our webinar, or um, seek that knowledge elsewhere, it's important, I think, that, that you um, gather that information as well. All right, well, thanks very much for touching on the proposed rule. Uh, now I'm going to move back to uh, the collaboration and communication. Uh, good insights that you all both provided, but uh, what what should we be thinking about in terms of how to take this information, the intent, the intent uh, behind this, and and really work with our teams and our agencies to go and prepare for being more effective in the new uh, environment. I think you need to look at communication um, kind of in, in several different ways, right? Um, you want to be able to formalize your communication. Be sure that you have a formalized process. doesn't mean it has to be complicated, but everyone needs to understand what the expectations are and their individual responsibilities are around communication, so formalize it. Um, you want to determine your frequency of your communication. Um, you know, how, how you do case conferences today and the frequency with which you do them today may not be the approach you want to take necessarily in the new world, or you might not make changes. Um, the focus of the communication. So as we talked about uh, the importance of rehospitalization risk, of grooming, of the primary diagnoses, um, that focus of the communication, understanding where you need to focus the communication. And most importantly, uh, and Mark alluded to this when he was talking about the collaboration piece, is the outcome of that communication. What do we do with that information? Um, after we have our meeting. Yeah, and I, I would just make uh, one additional comment with respect to, to those four areas that uh, Dawn mentioned. Certainly, um, those, are, those are the key areas, I think. And the comment I would make is, start now. Uh, there's absolutely no downside to um, organizing the processes, as Dawn said, formalizing the communication, determining what you want your frequency to be. Uh, how are you going to focus it, um, and then and then what outcomes are you are you going to expect? So all four of those apply t 
today. Uh, it will only prepare you better uh, for, uh, for January 1 and beyond. So I would really encourage uh, agencies to begin now. Absolutely, I think that's a great point. You have nothing to lose and everything to gain from enhancing care. Um, by by increasing communication. So um, some of the questions have come around, you know, strategy. So how do we do the communication? If you talk about formalized communication, that doesn't have to be a sit-down meeting. We're all in the same room. We're face-to-face, -face, right? Um, we do know that there's a sense of urgency around getting the information correct as soon as possible um, so that you can drop an accurate wrap as soon as possible. So looking at the timing of that communication. You know, oftentimes we were getting together at a case conference and anybody who got admitted for starter care last week was who we covered at the case conference. Um, the 30-day payment period and the change in the frequency with which you're going to be doing your billing, um, I think puts an increased emphasis on that. But also um, the information will be confirmed by CMS in the claim when it comes to like the primary diagnosis. You select the primary diagnosis, right? CMS is going to use the primary diagnosis to determine the clinical grouping. Um, when you look at institutional or community admission, CMS is going to look to the claim file to determine was that truly institutional or was it community. They're going to make that determination. And so the sooner you have accurate information to be able to drop the wrap, the more accurate your wrap is going to be. Um, so we've actually been looking at communication um, a couple of times a week, uh, but quick kind of stand-up calls so that folks come to the call prepared to talk about anybody who had a start of care within the last 48 to 36 hours. And so the folks know who's going to be covered. You have to have a very prescriptive list of what you're going to talk about, right? Um, and if everyone has completed and kind of turned in their answers, so to speak, ahead of time, the person facilitating the call can focus on where there are differences. So there's no need to talk about, we got the same score for ambulation, we got the same score for transfers, but there was a disconnect in grooming. Why did you see a different patient than I saw? Um, and what do we feel is the accurate reflection of the score for that patient? So focusing on where there is a consensus I think it's important, I think, focusing on the treatment plan and who is going to take accountability for which milestones for that patient to get to their goals um, is another important component of that. If you do that a week into care, you've already had maybe a couple of occupational therapy, a couple of physical therapy, and a nursing visit, and if we haven't collaborated and communicated around the best way to deliver care for that patient, you know, we're, we're already five visits into the episode, if I did that math right, um, as I was talking through it. So I think that's an important component of that as well. Yeah, I mean, great points, Don. And, and again, tie those back to the four bullets that Don talked about earlier. Um, so as you're trying to, to develop your specific plans, think about what Don talked about, formalizing the communication. So Don talked about how if each member of the team comes to that call prepared, and knowing what they're responsible for, what they should be ready to comment on, it's only gonna make that communication go better. Same way with frequency. Um, once a week is probably not enough. Um, and so looking at two or more times per week makes, um, makes a ton of sense. Um, 
you know, we've talked a lot so far about the clinical team. Um, and it seems to me, Don, there's, there's two other constituencies that it's important that we not forget about uh, in terms of the communication and the collaboration. And those two constituencies, which I'll ask you to comment on, are the, the physicians and the families and caregivers. Those are those are that's a great point to to include that that group in this conversation, right? Because the primary diagnosis has to be identified by the physician, and so if you have a physician now who is used to referring you patients, um, rehab patients, generalized lupus, history of falls, um, those are those are diagnoses that don't crosswalk in the new system. And so we're not going to change a physician's behavior overnight. And we all know that weakness is not the causative factor you know, for the patient's decline, right? It's a symptom, um, not, not the cause. And so working with your physicians now to help them understand the limitations in the new world and that these are patients that CMS will not reimburse for in home health and that will make it very challenging for them to receive services um, if we can't provide a more specific diagnosis. Um, but it's got to go beyond the physician saying, yep, I agree that that's the clinical diagnosis for this patient. That diagnosis has to exist in the record. It has to be part of the reason for safe space, right? So as you look at that documentation, there's going to be a learning curve involved there, and we're less than three months from implementation, and so it's it's time, right, um, to be able to to address that and work with the physicians now. Yeah. So again, start now. Start right. Now. Right. Start now. And then from the patient and family member perspective, and, and I mean, hopefully, we're always engaging the patient, the family member in their care. Um, but the amount of practice that a patient can perform um, for either whether that's a home exercise program. Um, use of principles like um, perceived rate of exertion that we've been working with the patient on, um, energy conservation principles, those, those items that we teach the patient in that skilled encounter, the more they can practice that between visits, the more efficient and effective our care is going to be. And so that needs to not wait until we're a couple of visits from discharge, but start initially. Um, the, you know, the NAC survey demonstrated that agencies are, a large percentage of agencies anticipate they'll be decreasing their number of therapy visits delivered. And um, if that's the case, um, first of all, we don't want to just accept that on a patient-by-patient -patient basis. We want to advocate for what the patient needs. Part of that ad advocacy is getting the scoring correct to begin with, because it's a resource model, and then the resources will be there to to take care of the patient, um, but if we need to um, be able to get the same or better outcome with fewer visits, right, if that becomes the reality, then how are we going to ensure that our patients make that progress? And ownership over their condition, condition management, um, turning care over to a family member or caregiver, that practice piece of it is going to be an important part of that patient being ready for the skilled intervention you're going to provide in that next level in the system. Yeah, so really helping both the patient and the family or, or caregivers understand that 
they play probably what's an enhanced role uh, in the recovery of that of their uh, individual uh, under this new payment model. That may not seem immediately obvious to folks, but I think you talked about that, Don. You, you, you referred to uh, agencies who are uh, contemplating or thinking that one of the strategies for success that they'll employ is a, uh, a small reduction in the number of total visits. And so the degree to which uh, we can help patients, families, and their caregivers participate, um, do practice activities, as you were talking about, uh, in between the skilled visits, uh, I think only serves to enhance the ultimate outcome. Sure. Yeah. And and we don't want to forget about um, the bath aids, right? That that may be home health aid that may be working with the patient, and so they really are back to part of that clinical team. We didn't um, talk about them when we were when we were there, but um, that the bath aid can do more than deliver a bath, right? They're a home health aid, and so it is within their scope um, to support the care that's being provided to the patient. Right? That's part of what they do. Um, so if we're working with the patient on transfers, for example, um, are we teaching our home health aides the cues that we would need to use with this patient? If it's a dementia patient, do they understand how to communicate with that patient so that they are, the patient is actively doing for themselves? It can be faster to just transfer the patient, right? And we've all seen that. Um, it, it's faster, it's more expedient, but taking the extra couple of minutes to allow the patient to make that functional movement themselves um, and thereby get um, increased activity, working on strength training um, while they're making those transfers is important. Cueing for safety, um, reinforcement of perceived rate of exertion. Right? If you've got a, a cardiopulmonary patient, does the home health aid reinforce to the patient, you know, well, how are you feeling? What would you give your score right now? Um, and that's just conversationally, it's not that difficult, but it can be an important part of solidifying the patient's understanding of what they're doing. Yeah, great point. Um, Dawn, one more um, category, if you will, that, that comes to mind for me. When we've talked about collaboration and communication here today, we focus a lot on the initial um, initial visits or encounters with the patient at the time of the start of care. But it occurs to me that the, the, the need for that collaboration communication is going to occur throughout the episode of care, right? So yeah. do you have particular thoughts on that or highlights that might be important for folks to think about? Sure. I think, you know, the 30-day payment period um, give you pause to think, right, as to when's the appropriate time to communicate. Um, right now, there's the FR30 that we do, and that doesn't change in the new world. So if you're on therapy um, before the 30th day, you need to have that functional reassessment completed by that specific discipline who's seeing you. Um, but if you're not assessing the patient until your FR30, you know, you're at the 30 days, right, whereas today, you still have 30 days left in that 60-day episode. Now, all of a sudden, you're doing your reassessment right at the end of what would be the first payment period and then making that determination of care. So it would seem to make sense to me to maybe assess that patient a little earlier in that time period, maybe at the two-week mark into the 30-day plan. Are they on plan um, for their, the frequency and duration that we established for meeting their goals with what we established? 
um, so that you understand going into that second 30-day payment period what the care delivery is going to look like. Um, because in the new world, there's 432 different lupus, right? So um, if we don't have an understanding of how that care delivered in the second 30-day payment period is going to impact the payment, because it's roughly half what it is in the first 30 days, um, it, it's going to be challenging from a business perspective, right? So the right clinical care at the right time is always the goal, um, but we have to do that um, with the understanding of the financial implications. Sure, and, and again, I think your point is, is really well made, that that, that communication um, should occur, should not occur right at the 30-day mark. Um, you want to communicate amongst the clinical team members uh, in advance of that so that planning can occur about what will the care delivery, what will the visit frequency look like in the second 30-day period as compared to the first, how many visits uh, should occur for a given patient in that second day period. So I think that all just underscores the importance of ongoing communication collaboration throughout the entire episode of care. Absolutely, important component. All right, well, Don and Mark, uh, thanks again for your uh, your time and suggestions, as always. I uh, want to remind uh, people that are listening to the podcast that there is a wealth of information on our uh, resource center, which you can find at aegistherapies.com. Uh, a lot of uh, additional podcasts, uh, articles, videos, uh, and we're going to continue to go and build out this resource center for you, not just in, in preparation for PDGM, uh, but, but well into the process. So please go to aegistherapies.com and take a look at what we've got for you. And uh, until next time, uh, good afternoon. <laughs>